goes in to see a doc Says there's something wrong with me I got a sadness I can't shake now Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression, and let's call this the Things People Don't Often Talk About edition. I'm John Moe. Anna Marie Cox is a writer, journalist, senior correspondent for MTV News, and she does the back page interviews for the New York Times Magazine. I've known Anna for a while, we're pals, and she launched a new podcast recently called With Friends Like These. It's about difficult conversations and relationships and politics. So she and I talked about the idea of being on each other's shows. Ultimately, we decided that we didn't really want to do interviews. We wanted to simply talk, have a conversation. Same conversation aired on both shows, a crossover, like when the Different Strokes gang appeared on Facts of Life. The conversation here gets pretty intense. We each reveal some stuff about our past that is painful, but is good to get out there. Here we go. Okay. And we're rolling? We're rolling. I guess we should introduce ourselves. Should we introduce each other here? Um, let's introduce ourselves because I, I feel like um, I always feel awkward introducing other people. Yeah. It so. feels a little like The Tonight Show. Yeah. I'm John Moe. I'm the host of The Hilarious World of Depression. And I am Anna Marie Cox, and I am the host of With Friends Like These. It is a, a two-host, no-guest, or two-host Double guest? I think it's two host double guest. Two host. I like to think I like to think in forms of multipliers. Hosts and guests squared. It's hosting guests squared. And um now for for listeners of my show, can you fill us in a little bit on on what your show is all about? Sure. Uh it is ostensibly sort of about politics. Um it's with the Crooked Media Network, which is the Pod Save America, Pod Save the World, Pod Save Us All. I'm the I think the only non pod <laughs> really non pod titled. Pod uh, show. Bless the Queen. Pod Bless the Queen. Yeah. Um uh, and it's about I the long version, it's about relationships and politics and politics and relationships, uh how our politics have an impact on our relationships and the other way around. And it's also about having conversations that you maybe have avoided or you didn't realize you had to have. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did. I've had conversations with people uh, in the disability rights community uh, about just being disabled, like which is something that a lot of able people don't kind of realize. They think you're not supposed to point it out, (laughs) you know, like you're not supposed to actually talk about the disabled disabled people. If you don't talk about their disability, maybe they'll forget that they have exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. When it's really more like maybe I get to forget that they have it, right? Right, right. Um, I talked with my good friend Ira Madison III about being my black friend um, and being kind of the black friend in a lot of relationships, yes. like what that's like. I love that episode. Yeah, it's it's he's hilarious. Um, and we talk about politics, too. I have a sort of reoccurring uh, guest, Rick Wilson, who's a you know diehard, never-Trumper. But uh, for the most part, the guys at Pod Save America don't like it when I say it's a show about uh, awkward conversations because they think people don't want to listen in on awkward mm, conversations. Right. But it, it's a show about awkward conversations. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> it's, a, it's a show about de-awkwardizing a lot of those conversations. Yeah, and, and being aware of them, uh, being aware of what the awkwardness is um, and, and going ahead and kind of diving through it because one of the things that we talked about, you know, when I talked to Ira was uh, discomfort is a tool of oppression, mm. meaning 
you know, I think a lot of white, able, cis people who are not, you know, any part of very many vulnerable groups really hate being made aware of other people's discomfort and hate being being uncomfortable themselves. Right. Would prefer to live life in comfort. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Comfort's awesome. Comfort. Their comfort zone. Uh, And so in a way, like your comfort, if you maintain, if you stay in a comfort zone, like you it, that's a tool of oppression. Mm. It, and you need to, in order, if you want to, you know, be down with the woke folk. <laughs> you got to get a little uncomfortable. Got to get a little uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, my show, The Hilarious World yes, of Depression. Yes, please. For, I, I, and for my listeners, please. Yes. yes. Uh, produced by American Public Media here in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, is a discussion about clinical depression, or ClinyD, as we sometimes name <laughs> it on the show. <laughs> Uh, told through the lens of comedy and comedians. It's a, a topic that I think needs to be talked about a lot more, given how pervasive it is and how silent it often is. And so I got in touch with a bunch of my friends from the comedy world uh, who deal with clinical depression, and we talk about it. We talk about what's funny about it, what's human about it. And the idea is that you're more likely to want to hear about it from Maria Bamford than from uh, a medical expert and so it's, it's a little bit of sugar coating to to let the pill go down there is a remarkable overlap of course in those communities yes yeah. in the comedy and depression community yeah yes absolutely i mean that's that's kind of what i'm started wondering are the there comedians thing. that don't get depressed there's a few I, okay. I found a few who i tried to book you should try i was gonna say you should interview them yeah and i tried to book them and they're like oh i'd love to be on your show i'm not actually depressed what's that like though know, right <laughs> <laughs> but there's been big disagreement too about whether the uh, whether that job attracts depressed people or turns them into depressed people. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people say, "Well, no, it's just there's as many depressed people in comedy as there are in among postmen." But your postman doesn't go on stage and talk about suicidal ideation. Uh, your, your dentist... It doesn't, it doesn't come up in their line of work. Right. Like when they give you the mail, they're not like, oh, by the way. By the way, I thought about <laughs> killing myself this morning. Yeah, your, your dentist isn't talking about despair. And if so, you wouldn't go to that dentist. Right. Um, but then a lot of people say, too, that it's, uh, it's sort of this perspective on life that you might gain through depression, where, mm-hmm. you, where you can, you know, you've looked at the void before. And a lot of people have looked at it, even if they aren't willing to say it. So if you make a joke about the void and the meaninglessness and the despair, that's going to get a laugh because people recognize that from the secret parts of their own brain that they haven't wanted to recognize, right. so I, to speak. Yeah, you know, there's the same kind of debate about uh, alcoholics yeah. and addicts and creative professions. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, part of me... I wants to think that the statistics are statistics and we're not that special, uh-huh. you know? Right. Um, and there are, you know, probably your postman. <laughs> now I'm thinking about this poor, drug-addicted, yeah. depressed postman <laughs> out there, the poor guy. <laughs> you deserve help, yeah. you know? Uh, but alcoholics and addicts are some of the funniest people I've ever met, some of the smartest people I've ever met. You go to a 12-step meeting and you will laugh, I promise you. Yeah. In fact, like, I've told my stories... Um, you know, about my recovery in non-12-step context, whether for, you know, um, uh, trying to be of service in other ways, like letting, you know, I think of them either civilians or earthlings. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're called normies. <laughs> um, 
we know what my what my story has been like. And I have some lines in my story that I think are hilarious, and this they do not go over well. They don't play. They do not play with the people who haven't been through it. They think there are jo- jokes about my depression, jokes about my bottom out. You know. Do you have any that you, you remember offhand, or are they all contextual? Oh, they're all super contextual. Okay. You know, except I mean, except just just describing like my time in the psych ward, which I've, I've spoken to you about before. Yeah, like, yeah. I want to get to that, and and sort of the genesis of our our conversation here is is we've known each other for a while and we got to talking about our shows and we realized that on the Venn diagram there's a, a big <laughs> big overlap well but in our specific interest and Venn diagram with us like yeah. and I I'm gonna go, I'm gonna you know my show is about awkward conversations about talking about the stuff you don't talk about and I know there's something that you don't talk about let's do it yeah let's go for it yeah um, so I have talked briefly on my show about my own depression, and this is something I've been dealing with since junior high school, at least, and only diagnosed until, not diagnosed until I was, I think, around 30, uh, maybe even a little bit past 30. And so I've been on a mission in that sense, but there, the event that has sort of driven my my fervor along these lines was the death of my brother by suicide. Uh, my brother Rick died uh, in April of 2007, and he had been uh, a drug addict for many years. I mean, I guess once a drug addict, always a drug addict. That's the language, right? Well, uh, active. Yes, yes. Yeah. He was an inactive drug addict, um, <laughs> as far as we know. Uh, for several years leading up to his death, he volunteered on a sobriety hotline, and he was uh, – he was evidently clean, and I, I keep putting those qualifiers in there of as far as mm-hmm. we know and as evidently because his form of addiction, he when he was using, he was full of lies. Mm-hmm. He was just an incredibly charismatic guy. Everybody who came into contact with him wanted to be around him some more, um, and he was able to use that to get all the the drugs and money and shelter and <laughs> services that that he needed. Um, he was very, very good at it. And so he went through uh, some sort of university clinical trial treatment thing, we are told, mm-hmm. again, with the qualifiers, and seemed to sober up. But uh, he, um, I mean, he'd used some hard stuff. He'd used a lot of methamphetamine and... Uh, when at the point he died, he had been depressed for some time, according to people who knew him. He lived in San Diego. I lived in Seattle when it happened. And he had he had confided in them a little bit about what was going on. He had gotten his ex-girlfriend pregnant. Mm. And he was at the age of, I think, 45, about to be a father for the first time and was really terrified of that. He told me... Um, several months before he died, he told me Christmas, the, the Christmas before. And it was really remarkable because I thought, he's telling me about being terrified of being a parent. And everybody I know who's had kids has been terrified of being a parent. You'd be crazy not to be. But there wasn't the uh, the excitement that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. The sort of, I've you know, I'm going to have a new best friend, <laughs> you know. That, I have reproduced. Yes, yes. I, I've fulfilled my biological just, yeah. imperative and, and I've reproduced. Um, but I didn't think much of it and I didn't even know he was depressed. And from what I have gathered, which isn't much from his life down there, he received a 
a recommendation from a doctor that he get to inpatient mm -hmm. treatment, that he that this is very serious, what he's facing. And he didn't want to do that. And he was ashamed of that. He was ashamed of his mental illness. And he was terrified that, that he had reproduced. And uh, he went to a gun range in San Diego, um, signed up for a membership a couple weeks before, had never been there as a member, uh, showed up, uh, bought, bought one box of bullets that um, he never opened. He went, so he went into the gun range, bought a box of bullets, went out to the range, and shot himself with a bullet that he had been carrying around in his pocket. Mm. Um, and uh, when I got the call that he had shot himself, my wife called me and I said, I, I just remember the most calm I think I'd ever been. I just said, oh, is he dead? And she said, I don't think so, but you need to get down there. You need to go to the airport right now and, and get to, to San Diego. And I found out that it was at a gun range. My first book had come out a few months before that in, in October of 2006. And uh, one of the chapters in it, I go to a gun range and I talk about how uh, I had to go there with a friend because the gun range wouldn't allow someone who wasn't a member to go there by themselves. And my brother had read my book. And so he had joined this gun range and then, and then killed himself there. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a burden of responsibility I've been carrying around for a while, over 10 years now. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I got the call to, to, you know, that, that he, this had happened. I flew down there with, with my mom and my sister and, uh, we got there uh, to the emergency room just before he died, and then he died once we were there. So, at the at the the service, we had a service down there and a service up in Seattle. And I thought, well, this sucks, <laughs> um, and it sucks that I didn't know that this was happening. It sucks that he felt a need to do this. Um, and it was it was the illness that did you know I, I told my my son was in kindergarten at the time I said well your uncle had had a brain disease that mm -hmm. we didn't know about and it killed him because I wanted to protect my five year old but I also wanted to tell the truth that's that is the truth it is the truth, the truth. and um, and I thought there there's got to be people need to talk about this more and, and and I've been trying to talk about it in any venue I could find ever since. And, and this has been probably the, the loudest I've been able to talk about it is this podcast. Right. And so as someone who's a um, – my, my, my part of this conversation is that I'm a survivor yeah. of a suicide attempt, actually, a couple. Yeah. Which I, I'm not – I don't keep a secret, but I don't really talk about in this public venue. So, hi. Hi, everybody. Hey. Tell, hey. Me about, tell me about the tattoo on your arm. Oh. Yes, that is one of the ways that I've decided to be public about it. Yeah. Uh, I have – I think it's a very poetic way. Well, so um, I started getting tattoos after I got sober. Uh, and they all have kind of stories about them. And one of – the second one I got was actually a pen – 
It's a fountain pen. It's on my forearm. Uh, it hap- it's sort of in honor of my father who collects fountain pens. Also, mm. I'm, hey, you know, I'm a writer. It's a little literal. Right. <laughs> um, but last year— And writers are always losing their pens. I know. You've got this one is like right the there. only fountain pen I've never lost. There you go. Um, uh, then, but then last year, I added a little something. I added a, a semicolon at the end of the pen, as though the pen had written it. And the semicolon is a— you know, unofficial um, symbol of survivorship. Uh, survivorship of, I think some people use it as general mental illness, but mm-hmm. it's it started pretty specifically as a... People who have attempted. People who have attempted suicide. And what it means is that you kept going. Like you could have stopped, but you kept going. Right. As I, writers usually especially appreciate the sentiment there. Yes. Uh, and I did. I, and, and so I have it on my arm when people ask about it. You know, I, I do tell them. Uh, I, I'm really open about being in recovery from my other disease, right? Mm-hmm. My, my addiction. It is tougher. I've become more open about being bipolar. So this is like the, <laughs> this is the reveal on top of reveal. Yeah. Although it's funny, like if you look at the Venn diagram for people who have um, bipolar disorder, people who are addicts, alcoholics, and people who have tried to commit suicide, like you're going to, that's statistically, I would, you, you could have guessed. Right. It would have been a pretty safe guess. Uh, people who have. That su- you were bipolar? <laughs> that I would attempt suicide. Oh, I would have attempted attempt suicide. suicide. Yeah. Just because it's, I read one statistic that it's something like 45% of those with substance abuse disorder have attempted suicide at one point or another. I know the statistic a little more firmly that six times people with substance abuse disorders are six times more likely uh, to attempt suicide. People with co-occurring disorder, meaning substance abuse and some other mental illness, um, have like a 30% suicide, like 30% more likely to have suicidal ideations. It's it Those three things, like I hit the jackpot, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, and I always... You know, I was listening to your story, which, of course, is heartbreaking. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons I want to be out uh, is to be of service, not to just people who I think should be talking about their own. Um, again, we have to talk about our language. Struggle? Is that a Challenges. struggle? Challenges? Yeah. I, I try to avoid the word fight because depressives, you know, would rather sit around in their sweats than, than fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, we have to come up with better language. But yeah. I, you know, I want—I I definitely want to be out about it because I think that stigma does prevent people from seeking help. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I want to be out because I feel like I have a message for survivors, uh, the families, or uh, those who, the people whose families have gone through this uh, and a successful suicide attempt uh, in the family, which is that—and I know you must have heard this—but there's nothing you could have done. Yeah. Yeah. There really isn't. I it's that's yes. <laughs> I hope that helps to hear it from no, me. No, it does. It does. I mean it it does help to hear it a thousand times um and I can convince myself of that plenty of times but it's you know it uh, these things are are complicated and right. they, and they recur. Cuz in the end it is sort of like an addiction in in the sense that it's Ultimately, it is an illness, yes, mm-hmm. but it ultimately resides within the person. Yes. And, and much as with an, I, I'm sure a lot of people who have friends and loved ones who are in the group of addiction know that there's, if that person wants to use, there is nothing that's going to stand in their way. Right. Nothing. Because they're not driving 
the ship at that point. Right. And I, I feel like suicide is similar, mm-hmm. but it's different in the sense that you can put up better roadblocks for people. Um, you can institute waiting periods for guns. Right. You know, you can make it harder. And I think every time you make it a little bit harder, I mean, that does some good. Well, that's the idea behind the guardrails on the bridges. Just make it harder. Get through that moment. Mm -hmm. Because it's true. Also, I read somewhere that most suicide ideations like last less than a minute. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if you can get through that minute, you know, you're you you have a chance of getting better. Right. I mean, which is sort of the language of addiction, too. You know, today I'm not going to drink. Right. And I want to hear uh, if you'd like to share it, if you're willing to share it, kind of what led up to. To your attempts and and what was going on, you know, in your brain. Like, let's get to that relatable moment. And I, and I know for for your show, we need to to drop in a break. Right, we'll drop in a break right here. All right, this break time. Now we're back. Now the we're magic back. of radio. We're actually just like we never went away, but no, we were just sitting here. Yeah. Um. So we were talking about your your semicolon and your uh, your. Bipolar and your addiction and the circumstances that led up to your attempt to deal with it in the wrong way. Yes, the permanent solution to a temporary problem, as people often say. So for me, it really is tied up with my mental illness and my addiction. I I think I would have defied odds had I not attempted suicide. Mm. Um, But, you know, I was in the depths of both. I was an untreated manic depressive. Um, I'm, I'm bipolar two, uh, which tends to have lower highs and lower lows. That's it's the just... Catherine Zeta Jones Demi Lovato bipolar. <laughs> well, <a> sexy bipolar, <laughs> isn't yes. it? Yes. Uh, and, and the highs are not as manic as uh, sort of what you think of the uh, Homeland bipolar, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Claire Danes bipolar. Um, not the actress herself, but uh, the character. character. Um, but the lows are you are just you know uh, frozen and immobilized and you know in that darkest darkest depth. And of course, I was um, using depressants, which uh, just make it worse. Yeah. Alcohol and also um, benzos, uh, both of which are and, and and also I was you know courting death just by mixing those two things. What are benzos? Benzodiazepines. um, Xanax is the most popular one. That's what I was doing. Um, I had a prescription, you know, like when I went. That means it's healthy. Yeah, it's good for you. Um, And my, you know, my marriage was in trouble. um, And I felt, and my consequences, as as we say, were adding up. My legal consequences, my work consequences. um, You know, I'd been arrested for uh, DUI, um, you know, my my work was really, you know, starting to suffer um, and becoming kind of erratic, more than just typical freelance writer erratic, mm-hmm. <laughs> like really erratic in my work. It's good with a, a writer and journalist to know that you can count on them. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. Although we're also notoriously erratic but right. there's like but like you I was outside the boundaries like editors had no idea what they were going to get you uh-huh. know um so my f- overall feeling in that period was just of guilt um crushing guilt that you would let somebody down let Everyone yourself down, down yeah. and that I was a burden and that I was never going to get better and that 
I, and this profound loneliness too. Because um, nobody understood what you were going through. But then I felt, I felt stupid for thinking that. You know, I'm smart enough to know that, like, other people go through this. I've read the books. You know, I, I mean, I, I, knew what, I knew what my diagnosis was, right? Sure. Um, but I just, yeah, I would say loneliness and guilt were the, the things that weighed down on me. And actually, like, even telling you this right now, I can feel, I can feel it the way that I felt it then, which is, like, this feeling in your chest of weight Mm-hmm. Like a like a metal band around my chest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know it's there, but that doesn't make it any more comfortable, right? And and you know, drinking and using helped. I mean, I, I mean, relieve the symptoms, relieve the symptoms. And you know, I just basically came to a point uh, where I thought the only solution was to just not exist. That. I was never going to get better. I was never going to be anything but a burden. I was never going to escape this crushing guilt. And everyone would be better off, including myself, if I ceased to exist. Did you think that that would that there would be relief for you that followed that? Because this is sort of the conundrum of suicide, right? Is right. That you, there is no you to feel better, as Dick Cavett said. Yeah. And this is where maybe sort of the fog of using comes in because it, it wasn't it, – most addicts and alcoholics aren't thinking about consequences in general. So I think that in a weird way, like I was, I was, I was being just as short-sighted with my thoughts of suicide as I was with, you know, drunk driving. Like I wasn't thinking about, about what would happen next. Right. If you I had d- been, you wouldn't be doing those things in the first exactly. place. Exactly. Yeah. I was just thinking it, – it's sort of um, – I often compare it to like it's just like being in extreme pain of any kind. Like, you just want relief from your pain. Mm-hmm. And you don't think about what's going to happen after you get that relief. Like, the feeling of pain is so overwhelming. It's so present. You can't think straight. Right. You know? And so you don't make good decisions. <laughs> You're not making good decisions. And so, you know, that I, yeah, I, I, took, I, I, I took what I had. Um, I had just gotten a fresh prescription. Um, and then I was just really lucky. Um, uh, I made it. I made it. Um, and I, I woke up in the ER. <laughs> wait, wait, describe the circumstances. I'm so glad you made it. Describe the circumstances that you were in. Like, where were you? What What was going on when you uh, when you took them? And what did you take? Well, I don't want to get into too much detail. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's Let's not get into what you took because we don't I, want to give people any details. And I don't want to get. Oh. Um. Let's see. So I was actually on a business trip, which is sort of embarrassing, too. But, like, that's my, you know. Travel's a total trigger, though. Yeah, it is. Yeah. um, For a lot of people, both depressives and for um, people with substance abuse orders, because you're away. So Mm -hmm. there's kind of this feeling of, like, oh, I can get away with it or it's a special occasion or whatever. So um, I was – it was at the end of a day that I had, you know, I'd sort of been good, quote, unquote, good. Um, but then had relapsed and uh, was being called on it. And I, I, I just made this decision of 
you know, not thinking about what it would do to the people in my life, not thinking about my husband at the time, not thinking about my family, my mother, my father. That's another thing that's really short-sighted. It's, it's incredibly self. I mean, I feel like I can say this. It's an incredibly selfish thing to do. Like yeah. committing suicide is really fucking selfish. Right. But the disease, the addiction or the, or the depression or whatever it is, is blinding you to that. Right. Um, so I wasn't thinking about anyone or anything else. I was just thinking about my pain. And uh, so I took um, this – I had this brand new Xanax prescription. I was already pretty loaded um, on booze. And I just – you know, I just swallowed everything. Uh, and I was lucky, you know, um, my ex-husband found me before things got too bad and uh ambul- I mean I don't remember any of anything really except w- waking up you didn't expect to wake I up I didn't expect to wake up I was so pissed Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't you weren't like oh another chance at life. No. Well, I pissed. I was kind of like I felt defeated. Defeated is probably the better word. I felt like I think my like exact sort of thought was oh, fuck. Like <laughs> Fine. You know, I guess. All right, fine. Another obstacle. You know, yeah. well, no, it was, it was the sense of surrender, which is a good thing. Yeah. You know, higher uh, power. Higher power. I did have a moment of like, I wasn't thinking in terms of higher power. Like, I'd been to AA or whatever, but like, I wasn't really thinking about recovery. But I just remember thinking, okay, fine. Like, you win this round. You know, <laughs> I'll give it another shot, meaning I'll give, you know, life. Another yeah. shot. Because yeah. I had this, I did have this really um, overwhelming feeling of, well, that that there must be some other plan for me. Hmm. Were you religious? Before? I was not religious. And it's hard to talk about it because it was just this real sense. And I don't mean to, I don't want to make it like mystical or anything, but it no. was more like, again, like I, I wasn't even thinking in terms of a God or a higher power, but I was thinking, all right, fine. I was surrendering to something when I said, all right, fine. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll give it a shot. Mm-hmm. It was some sense of like, okay, well, that didn't work. And I am out of ideas. Mm-hmm. I am just done. Because that was the last, that was my, that played my last card. Yeah. And it didn't work, so I guess I'm just, you know, to sit, use the, you know, cards before. I'm just, sit, I'm just sitting there. I'm just, like, going to – whatever cards come my way. Yeah. Like – What's the Dorothy Parker line? Like, poison tastes awful, might as well live. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it was – yeah, it was sort of a might as well live situation. And I was in this place of just complete befuddlement and surrender. And so I started – to basically do most of what people suggested what the very first thing was which is was unavoidable it was not a suggestion <laughs> it was a very very firm uh requirement by the state that i go to a psych ward for a while ah involuntary so, involuntary commitment yay now, from what i've heard and I've, I've talked to a few people on my show who've gone through this um Maria Bamford actually Maria Bamford has talks about this on her brand new Netflix special that if you're looking to go somewhere to get healed, no. <laughs> you're just going into basically a tank where they take away your phone and you have to watch really bad TV yeah. with people who might even be worse off than you. Right. Oh, this was a definitely worse off than me situation. Um, I had been in, uh, committed before, um, voluntarily committed uh, to a psych ward where 
it was very posh. It was like a private hospital mm. and like you got to keep your own clothes and order off a menu and mm-hmm. have your phone. And <laughs> it was it was a little just like kind of a spa. Like it uh-huh. was, I mean, you know, like a kind of a downscale spa, maybe. Uh-huh. Right. Um, this the this, public university of, it, of spas. <laughs> right. this, this was a public hospital that I went to, and I say this with love and respect, but it had like you know actual crazy people, like mm-hmm. people who were manifesting their symptoms, not just rich people who were trying to deal. Like yeah. this was were people, you know, schizophrenics, psychotics, uh, psychotics, yeah. and um, thank God for them, man. Like I, because I belong there. It was this breakthrough for me. It was like fine. It was like being like, you know what? I can't fool myself any longer. Like the I'm crazy too. When I say like they're real, real crazy people, this word, like well, I'm I was one of them. Like yeah. I went crazy. That's why you were there. I was there because I was crazy. I was there because I could not be trusted. You know, they took we took away all the sharp objects and the you know, shoelaces and belts, and we had to eat with everything with spoons. <laughs> and had you, I mean, that must have been... It only color with crayons. We actually, the adult <laughs> coloring book craze, like, that happened, I laughed so hard when it sort of started because they had coloring books when I was in the psych ward. Yeah. And uh, we could, we had to color with crayons because we weren't wow. trusted with other... <laughs> yeah, you're back in kindergarten. <laughs> and um, I remember complimenting uh, the aide that, had them like they sort of ran the coloring book <laughs> hour. <laughs> your dealer, your hookup with the crayons. Yeah, with the crayons, because they were like fairly like non. You know, there w- wasn't a lot of frozen. We were actually there were like you know mandelas and like unicorns and stuff. And uh, he was talking about how hard it was to find non children. Yeah, you don't oriented door of the color. Yeah, coloring point. books. And I'm like he. And I was when the adult coloring book craze happened. I was like, wow, his life is easier. <laughs> Thank God for that. He's finally caught he's a got, break. He's got a break. He doesn't have to like go searching through deviant art forums <laughs> to print something up on his little <laughs> HP right. printer. He can, he can buy whole books. Like, I, I, good for him. Like, his life is easier now. Was there a, a, a marker that you had to hit in order to get out of there, or one that you were aware of? It was of? a like, time period. It was just a time period. Oh, okay. Um, you had to do time. I had to do time, but it was. Joined. It was. I'm so glad it it happened. Uh, not only did there was an a someone brought an AA meeting to that uh, psych ward, and I don't remember anything about the meeting except just thinking the two people that brought it had you know part of their story. They said that they had been in psych wards themselves, and they seemed to be having decent lives. Mm-hmm. And I had that grasping thought that a lot of people have, which is that okay, all right, they did it, so it's possible. All right, maybe me. You know, okay. All right. It's Had you like, owned up I, to being an addict at that point? I knew. Um yeah. But you had you said it out loud? I'd said it. I'd been to meetings, but um you know, like the you hear a lot from people in with substance resources like terminal uniqueness. And by that <laughs> they mean terminal as in a disease. Mm. Like it's it's a it's a deadly form of uniqueness. And that's what people, you know, often have. And I felt like I had that. I, I definitely had thought I was like, well, it wouldn't work for me. Like that it works for you guys, but not me. And But, you know, having this kind of bottom made me and seeing other people who had been through it made me think, all right, this is it could work for me. Yeah. And the other thing that happened at that meeting was everyone had to go to everything because there weren't enough people to, you know, have separate groups. So, right. like, you had the actual crazy people at the at the AA meeting, too. And I don't want to – I now feel like I can't – I shouldn't talk too much about it. But let's just say, like, 
there are some really interesting shares because some colorful stories, some colorful stories that may or may not be rooted in reality, reality as we know it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, there are two other gentlemen there that were lucid, <laughs> <laughs> who identified as alcoholics. I remember like bonding with them, and they were both uh, there as guests of the state. Mm-hmm. Um, both black guys. And actually, I remember having a moment with them where they asked me what I was going to be doing after I got out. And I was like, oh, well, they want me to go to treatment. Um, and they both were like, oh, man, that's awesome. And I was like, <laughs> you got a ticket. I was like, oh, right. Like, that is awesome. I do get to go to treatment, you know. Because you're a, a white lady? Because I'm a white lady with insurance and, you know, resources. Yeah. And yeah. they they were, ta- yeah, like they, you know, one guy was going to sign up for um, sign up for a study, a research study in order to get treatment. And the other guy just didn't know what was going to happen. Um, And then the other really amazing thing that happened while I was there was there was this woman um, who I think was probably schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. She had a very loose relationship, which went to the reality when we would be in group to talk. Like her, her shares were off you know would kind of go off into very uh into fantasy Mm -hmm. and she was a couple things i remember she was actually really beautiful um she was sort of older um she looked like the lead singer of i think said this like uh, kim gordon she looked like kim sonic youth sonic youth yeah. yeah and she was trying to share at a group session once and in I, she was so frustrated. I remember she got this look on her face, like you're like when you're trying to remember a word, like or something. But she, what she said was, "I can't make my words match my mind." Wow, those are some words to live by. And I, I just was like, same, <laughs> you know. That's sort of the whole Same. that's sort of the whole thing like if you break your leg there's all sorts of terminology for exactly what the problem is if there's a vertebra problem you you can identify which vertebra you can't do that with mental illness mm-hmm. um, I think about I think about that woman a lot actually I know I hope she's can't make your words match your brain yeah match your mind mind Mind, brain. Mind, it was, brain but it was. This thing. is the idea that, like, again, it's just what I what I want to tell you is inexpressible. Yeah. What I'm trying to tell you is uh, is impossible to express. Must have been heavy for you as a writer too, because your whole job is to express those things with words. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I can try. I mean, I think we're doing an okay job talking about it right now. But, yeah. um, you know, I think that anyone who's been through it, any kind of mental illness, um, understands that. There is ultimately very lonely feeling. That's one of the reasons why it feels so lonely is because you don't – it's – the feelings do not translate very well at all, even for writer, the the most best writers in the world. Yeah. I mean I've been dealing with this, like I said, for a very long time and and I've reached several sort of resigned points where I'm like, well, screw it. This isn't going to get cured. Um, this is going to be good at sometimes and bad at other times. 
but I'm just weird. Like that that's always the term that's that's been in my head. It's like I know I'm not I'm not processing things like I think other people are. I'm not responding to situations like other people do. Sometimes I am, but often not. And screw it. I'm just weird. I'm just going to be weird forever. And it <laughs> and it took you know, someone diagnosing me is no, this is you have a chemical thing. You have a, a disease called depression. Here are ways we can yeah. treat it that has uh, led me to start thinking of it in in other terms or attempt to. I don't always succeed. I still think I'm awfully weird. I think weird's a good word. I also think diagnoses are incredibly freeing, actually. Yeah. I mean, I think some people see being diagnosed with a mental illness, whether it's addiction or depression or bipolar, as a sentence of some kind, as a limiting thing. Right. Like, I had the experience, because it happened for me when I was in treatment, of it being very freeing sense because I was like, oh, so that's what's wrong with me. Yeah, you are understood. Like, it's sort of go to go back to, like, feeling like you can't express stuff. It's like being told, like, oh, that's a broken leg. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know. And we can, we'd have some things that we can do. Yeah, I've dealt with three broken legs this week in this office. Right. And here, here's my plan for your, to help heal you. And it works sometimes. I mean, it's, it's unlike other illnesses, yeah. physical illnesses, because it's a lot of guesswork still. Yeah. But both, both being diagnosed as an addict and also being diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which another word we talked about earlier, disorder is a weird word, but mm-hmm. um, being bipolar. You're a bipolar American. I'm a bipolar American. That's right. <laughs> um, it was like, woohoo, okay, well, that explains a lot. Yeah. That is, Did you get the bipolar? Honestly, the, my first thought was, well, that, that does explain a lot. Right, that connects some things. <laughs> Did you get that diagnosis while you were in lockup? Uh, no. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, but it, then I, more thorough, you know, conversations and diagnoses um, once I was in treatment and stabilized. Because, mm-hmm. you know, part of the problem in the lockup was that I was still basically kind of coming out of, you know, I was you know, going through withdrawal. Like I wasn't I wasn't well yeah. for a lot of reasons. Right. Um, so I sort of stabilized in treatment. I was in treatment for four months. Wow. Uh, highly recommended for, if you can afford it. Um if the insurance gods grant you the if power. If the insurance gods grant you the power. We can, uh, you and I talked about we might, we might have to do a sidebar on insurance coverage. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but I, for people with co-occurring disorders, often suggested they do long-term uh, inpatient uh, treatment. And I was lucky enough to be able to do that. Which actually insurance did not cover the long-term part. I have my father to thank for being able to do, do it. He was um, really amazingly... You know, he's my dad, so of course he did it. But on the other hand, yeah, you were very fortunate. Very fortunate. Um, so, but it was the sense I really, really did have. Like, oh, that really does connect the dots on some things. Like, I'm, either, I'm a very specific kind of weird. Yes, <laughs> like it's not just <laughs> amorphously weird. Like, there's some stuff that I did that I couldn't explain to myself. Like behaviors, mainly having to do with like kind of the more mania stuff. Like when I would like take everything out of my closet and stay up for two days like organizing it or like I would like develop these grand plans for books and order a thousand things off Amazon and uh-huh. you know then get depressed and just look at the boxes you know uh, but you were you were an achiever too mm-hmm. like this, I talked with with Peter Sagel from Wait Wait about this Wait Wait Don't Tell Me and, and he talked about uh you know he got into a great college and he wrote mm-hmm. plays that got produced and like he was sort of on the run from his from his mental illness. If he just kept achieving, then see everything's fine. Clearly, and you had a 
you've had a really interesting and varied and successful career. Yeah, although, of course, in the inside, always not successful enough. Never mm. successful enough. Yes. Ever, yes. ever, ever enough. Because, I, I mean, I, I, I've I, gone through something similar where, where you, once I got a national radio show, I'm like, oh, my God, now my problems will be solved. Oh, wait, that's not going to fill the hole that's inside. Not going to fill the hole inside. And also, um, I think this is common for people with all the different things that we have, <laughs> which is that if I can do it, then it must be a dumb like right. if I can do it, it, it's not that hard, and my achievements are worthless. And or I'm a fraud who will soon be exposed. Or a fraud who I mean, so everything I ever did that was like a big deal, I'd be like, oh well, I guess it's not a big deal. I thought that would be a big deal, but it's not because I could do it. So that means any any idiot could. <laughs> so on to the next thing that I think is hard, and then if I achieve it, then oh, well, I guess yeah, that that turned out to be like not really important either. Right. Um. So, I mean, I was like, you know, I also come from an alcoholic family and that's a very like adult child of alcoholic kind of thing too. like yes. trying to fill the fill the hole with accomplishments yeah. and achievements. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> and also you don't have to worry about me. Right. I am good. Yes. I am good. You don't I'm have not to a worry to about you. you. I'm not a burden to you. Yeah. Which I think. Is, I, I, I imagine there's some of, for your brother, some of that. I think so. I mean, I think, and we have we have alcoholism in our family as well. And, you know, for me, like I I took to, to theater at a very early age. And I, I was telling somebody the other day, I've never been a good enough actor to make it big as an actor, but I've been a good enough actor to get through a lot of situations. <laughs> I'm just good enough for that. Um, you know, probably can't play Hamlet, but I can get out of a party once in a while. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I th- and I think, like, my brother dealt with uh, the, the chronic, uh, you know, dormant mental illness in our family and the, the substance abuse issues. And I'm sure he was predisposed to a lot of that. And from a very early age, uh, he started smoking pot. And that led to a bunch of other things, and most of which I don't know about. But I know there were DUIs, and I know there was, uh, I know there was problem gambling in mm-hmm. his life. And uh, I think he he was, I mean, to use the term a lot of people use, self medicating. Mm-hmm. He was he was trying to make that pain go away. A lot of people, you know. I, I think it, I mean, it works till it doesn't work, right? Yeah. Like that's another sort of right. saying, but it, it does work for a while. Like yeah. the achieving works for a while. Yeah. You know, and, but eventually the more things you try to use to fill that emptiness, the emptiness just gets bigger. Right. Like the emptiness stretches, <laughs> you know, out the more you put in it, unless you address the emptiness itself. Or be, and I think not to just abuse our metaphors, but, I think what happens in recovery for either addiction or mental illness is you just you do address the void. Mm-hmm. Like you're just like, you know what? That's there. Yeah. And it's something I'm going to have to work on, but I can't just stuff it with other things and right. or pretend it doesn't exist. Right. I just have to be okay with like naming it. Naming it and not being okay. Like I have to be okay with not being okay. Yeah. 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 And in weird way that's how you start to get better well it's the elephant in the room right. you're, you're saying look this is a thing that exists and and i you know we we started our podcast about depression and i thought oh this will be kind of a 
a fun little thing. And I got to talk to some of my friends, and and you know, you actually probably did have that thought, didn't you? It'll be fun. It'll be fun, and and you know, well, I mean, I I did sort of look at what was on my my mental, what was in my mental pantry that mm-hmm. I had available to work with, and I'm like, well, I know a lot of comedians, and I'm depressed. <laughs> Let's see if we can make a pie out of that. <laughs> it's like the podcasts are like the omelet of media. Yeah, just throw it all in yeah, the pan. Yeah, just like, what do I have? Yeah, oh, I have some I'll just stir that up, yeah. a little olive oil. Yeah. Um, and, and people have really responded to it, I think, because – and this – it astonishes me how much people respond to open conversation mm-hmm. about this because – I'm kind of used to being a, a semi-public figure, and I know you are too. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess a lot of people don't talk about these things. Yeah, and I'm always – I mean, that's one of the reasons why we decided to, to talk about this uh, you know, for a podcast and put it out yeah. is because I do think it helps people because it, there isn't enough conversation about these issues, especially around suicide. Um, there are 41,000 suicides every year. And we're at like a 30-year high on them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And drug and alcohol-related suicides are up 50% in the last 10 years. Um, a third of all suicides, I think, have some kind of you know, alcohol or drugs involved. Um, and they're pointing to uh, widening economic disparity yeah. as a huge contributing factor right now, too. Yeah. And then you got so all the military, it's a great idea to take away some health care. That's what you want to do. <laughs> what you want to do at a moment like this is take away people's access to mental health care. Oh. <sighs> But while we still have it, <laughs> um, I think what if we we start to try and address the prevention part of it, the prevention part of it does mostly lie with the person who's suffering, mm-hmm. you know. And what I would like to, what I would hope that people get out of my talking about it is to is to go ahead and tell people, tell a doctor, tell a therapist, tell a teacher, yeah. tell, tell some, a spouse tell for a the spouse. first time sometimes. Because one of the things that was, I feel like I can laugh about now, but um, I thought everybody thought about suicide. I thought that that was, I thought that was normal. I thought, <laughs> and I know it seems so ridiculous. So you, you had the ideation for, for a long years, time. years, yeah. years, years <laughs> and years. I, I hope my dad doesn't get upset listening to this, but... Um, you know, going back to like probably even earlier than junior high, not active, mm-hmm. which is another reason why I thought it was sort of normal because mm-hmm. I wasn't like taking steps. I wasn't making a plan. It was more like just this passing thought of like, oh, that's an option. Yeah. That is an option that, that I have. And I just assumed everyone else, like when they w- were going through the ways they had to deal with life, like that's always option E, you know, like you can do this A, B, C, D or E. Yeah. Kill yourself. Eh. All right. No, not this time. Yeah, right. A lot of people never consider E. I, I always think it's like you're on a freeway and suicide is the off ramp. Mm-hmm. But nobody nobody else realizes. Everybody else thinks they're on like some kind of expressway where there's no <laughs> off ramp. And you're like, don't you see what it just yeah. went by? Yeah, you could do that. And I so I was constantly making the choice to not not do it. Yeah. And because I was making the choice not to, I never thought about the fact that I had it in my mind at all. And I never talked about it to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most helpful things I did in treatment was my counselor had me keep track of, of times I thought about self-harm. Wow. And it turns out it was like a, you know, it was multiple times a day. And she, <laughs> she was like, and on it, that's not, it's not normal. It's not, it's okay. It's okay that it's not normal, yeah. but it's not. And you deserve 
to have someone help you with this. Yeah. Which is a huge leap to make. To The first leap is like to share it all. And then the second leap is like, oh, but you, I also get help for this? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Right. Right. It's, it's not normal and it's addressable. Um, I remember, you know, very first time I was uh, clinically depressed, which I was diagnosed as a depressive before bipolar. It's, I think, somewhat normal to get for people to miss the manic part of bipolar too. But yeah, and the, but with bipolar two, it's kind of an umbrella diagnosis where depression is part of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I remember the very when I was first diagnosed with depression, I didn't want to take the antidepressants because I thought it was cheating. <laughs> it was like I don't deserve to take this antidepressants because then I'll just feel better. I won't have done the work. Man, ear infections make... never do this. Like, <laughs> depression is so insidious. It's like it, it, it's destroying all your ability to fight it. You know, you never get this from strep throat. Yeah, I didn't strep deserve... Strep throat isn't a jerk like that. I don't... Strep throat never makes you think like, oh, you didn't earn that antibiotic. <laughs> right. You, you deserve just, an infection. You just have to suffer through this infection until you get better by yourself. I totally, I mean, I, and that's the way I, I and although I did, did take antidepressants, you know, I, I still kept drinking, which so it didn't really help. They didn't, weren't able to do their job. And I still carried with me that kind of attitude of like, I, I need to be able to fix this myself. Like, I don't deserve help for this. Mm. Um, and I also really would like people to understand that uh, suicide ideation is is not normal and you get to talk to people about it and also attempts no matter how quote unquote unserious they may seem are fucking serious. Yeah. And you deserve help for them too. And there's no, I I think I felt, and I also, I somehow got the message that like my first attempt, since it wasn't really serious, like was, I kind of felt bad. I felt like I was, I was being like a drama queen. Well, you know? and, and people use that term, oh, that's just a cry for help. That's just a cry. For, well, it's a cry for help. It's a cry for help. <laughs> it's like if someone's out there in the ocean drowning and they're crying for help. Yeah. You don't say, oh, well, just get over it. Yeah. You know, pull but yourself The water's together. not that deep. Come on. Like if someone's in the ocean, so let's say, you know, it's, it's it, the, the, the swimming metaphor, right? Uh, if someone's drowning, if in the water's only 10 feet deep, you're mm-hmm. not like, water's only 10 feet deep. <laughs> Like, I can swim out of that. You Why know, can't you? Like, yeah, you can't touch the ground. You still could drown. But it's only, I mean, it's not like you're in the ocean. It's not like you're really in the ocean. Like, call us, call us when you're in the ocean. Right. Well, then we'll save you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember when I was, uh, I worked at Amazon.com before I got into radio. And it was, it was a very, I mean, I think they're all intense times at, at Amazon. There was that New York Times article a while ago about, you know, they discovered all these people from Amazon cried at their desks. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's what you, you get in in the morning. You check yeah. your meetings. You check your email. You cry. Then you, you know, yeah. you, you fire something up. It's like the two-minute hate. There's like the two-minute yeah, cry. Exactly. Yeah. And I was working on some project with a really crazy deadline. And I was – I remember driving into work like, wouldn't it be great if I just killed myself? Hmm. Oh, well, I guess I better get to work. And it just – and I think it was so sudden and so – such a strange thought. I'm like, okay, I can recognize that as an intrusive thought. Mm. <laughs> like that is not a legitimate option that I can do. But how strange that the wiring in my brain, which I did not set up, uh, goes to that place. Yeah, and um, it and there's just some of us it does, and yeah. it is it does take 
and it takes some work to stop thinking like that. Yeah. But now I don't think like that, and it, every once in a while I have to I have to be I have to take a step back and be like, wow, like yeah. that's not on my radar anymore. That's got to feel good. It it doesn't feel like anything unless I recognize it, uh-huh. right? It just feels like oh, this is what it is like to not think that way. You don't think about it until you think about it, right? Because um, it's the new normal. It's the new normal, but it does take constant work. You know, I continue to try and heal myself. There's no, there's no pill. I do take lots of different pills, all prescribed and none of them, uh, you know, all the, they're good, the good kinds of pills. Um, they not mood altering. That's what they say. That's mm. the difference between, you know, Xanax and, uh, Wellbutrin. Right. But, uh, it, there is recovery work to be done in mental illness that is in, in a parallel way to addiction where, you know, I, I, I still do daily affirmations, which still feel idiotic. Uh-huh. The very first time I ever was asked to look in the mirror and tell myself that I liked myself, felt like a fucking idiot. Yeah. My and therapist just, has me mentally go to my happy place. And I'm like, oh, come on. Uh, but it kind of helps. It helps. <laughs> I know. Well, I remember telling my counselor in, in treatment, like, I feel so dumb. Like, I cannot do this. I cannot stand in front of a mirror and tell myself, like, awesome things about myself. And she was like, okay, what did you do when you were drunk? Were you? Mm. Could you, like, how does that was were you wait did you do some stuff that was stupid then and i was yeah. like okay well good point taken <laughs> touche touche <laughs> and then she said and i said well i also don't think it's going to work i just don't believe this is going to work like i'm too smart for it to work right mm. i'm i know the truth about myself which is that i'm a horrible person so i won't believe this bullshit from myself right. that i'm not right. and she said well you know i understand you think that positive affirmations positive self-talk won't work how did the negative self-talk work? Did that did that have an effect? How's that working out How's for that? you? Yeah. And I was like, again, touche. <laughs> trained therapist. Trained therapist. You are earning your <laughs> keep. And because the negative self-talk, I think we can all recognize this. Negative self-talk totally works. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> That's why so many people love it. Yeah. It is effective. And so, you know, I do positive self-talk. Like, you know, I have a spiritual, like practice i try to do meditation like a lot of people like you know it's our in american way of life it's hard to fit in yeah um i have a therapist you know i see a i see a psychiatrist every three months to check in on meds uh so it's not like it just goes away and i'm better so i'm i never in a very good way i think i never forget that i'm on this journey yeah of of getting better, like there's always like it's all it's a it's not going to end. It's you know? funny how the the ridiculous stuff works really well. I mean, I guess there's a, a reason why it became a cliche is because it became so present. I mean, I like I, I was talking about with my brother. I wrote this book where I talked about you know the circumstances with which some people kill themselves in a, at a gun range. And then a few months later, he did mm-hmm. that exact thing. And uh, I was, you know, I was like, well, I gave him the idea, the blood's on my hands. Mm-hmm. Or when he was calling me over the years and I got the sense that he was just trying to hit me up for money, I wouldn't return his calls. And if I had, he'd be alive. And I've got, you know, I went through therapy and I, I went through all these things in therapy talking about that. And 
I would say, well, isn't it a little convenient to say that I'm not responsible? <laughs> like, doesn't that get me off the hook a little bit? Too e- isn't that a plot it's a device? Bit like, I don't deserve to get better. Yeah, and and uh, and I had a therapist who said, "Isn't it a little convenient to say that you are responsible?" Yeah. Um, but what it really took, because I couldn't, I could understand intellectually every drop of not being responsible. Like I, I got it, and I got the reasoning. I got the, the you know, the research. Fine, but I couldn't in my heart do it. Mm-hmm. And I did um, EMDR. Have you ever oh, heard yeah. of this? Yeah. Where and you have these little electrical buzzers it sounds in your hand. Suspiciously like Scientology. It I, sounds like the dumbest thing in the world. Yeah. And but um, but um, by these little like brain retraining things and concentrating on the very devastating um, but truthful sentence, Rick shot himself. Mm-hmm. Those three words. Um, you know, it's a devastating thing to hear about your hero, your big brother who taught you how to drive. Um, but it, it really has pushed me towards a truth that I can then work to maintain, but it came with hand buzzers. <laughs> like cans, right? Like they're yeah. Like, they're like sort of like the Scientology cans. Exactly. Yeah. I know. I, and, you know, I was waiting for the therapist to want me to sign up for $10,000 in extra <laughs> classes or send me off to Sea Org, yeah. but that didn't happen. And I, w- I, I it's been recommended to me. I haven't um, – I've been able to – muddle forward without yeah. it. But yeah, apparently, especially highly traumatic events, it's been suggested to me to deal with, you know, some of the other traumas in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, it, our brains are so weird. Yeah. Like, they're just... They're just goo and nobody really knows how they work. Like antidepressants, no one's really sure like exactly how they work. No yeah. one's really sure how addiction works. Yeah. Um, There's indication that depression might be related to swelling. Like, oh. there might be some swelling in there. Yeah. Why know, not? It's so. all goo. Why shouldn't it swell? <laughs> I, I like the theory that um, a lot of uh, mental disorders are sort of like OCD. Mm-hmm. That that's why, like, Wellbutrin is used to treat a bunch of different stuff. The compulsiveness. Because it's a, every, a lot of it's compulsion, right? Yeah. And I do think of, like, my suicide ideation was a compulsion, yeah. Like was something like it was a it it turned into this thought that was just present. Right, just routes right back to that place. Yeah, and like I don't even want to say out loud like the negative self talk that I had, but I had a very distinct litany. I'm like, okay, like okay, see, I'm gonna tear up. Like I'm it's a, okay. I'm a bad person. That's why we put Kleenex in yeah. the studio. Like I had I had this tape in my head that's like I'm a bad person. I deserve. I don't. I don't deserve anything. I'm a bad person. I don't deserve this. I'm a bad person. And it would just, you know. Loop. Loop. Um, I'm a bad person. I want to die. I'm a bad person. I want to die. I'm a bad person. I want to die. And it was like a tape loop. I, I tried to, another thing, like I can't make my words match my brain. I would try to describe it to people and it because f- it feels like a tape loop somehow in your head. Like I have this image of like a, of the real to real, like running behind my eyes. And um, it would be intrusive and would not go away and would occur to me at the weirdest times. And eventually it was it was inescapable, mm-hmm. you know. Was it comforting in a way? 
I do think so. Yeah. I do think that. Because there must be a reason you kept going back to it. I, I think in some ways that that is what compulsiveness yeah. teaches you. It's a catechism. Is, is it teaches you to be comfortable with those things? You develop an addiction mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. And when it goes away, like you have to learn other ways to think. Yeah. And you have to learn a new reality to ground yourself in because that one is is familiar but toxic. Yeah. And it's I, I've said to people a thousand times, like, for me, cutting out the drugs and alcohol was relatively easy. Like, I just – I happened to luck out kind of just physiologically. Uh-huh. I didn't have a terrible time. Um, I wasn't addicted to opiates, number one. Those are physically right. pretty tough to kick, just the physiology of it. Yeah. Um, alcohol can be bad too. Benzos can be bad too. But it, actually, some people say they're worse. But I just, you know, whatever combination of things happened, my physically, I got out of it okay. Mm-hmm. And I also was lucky in not dealing with cravings very much because and I think that's because I had such just a vi- not violent, but like a low physical bottom. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Doesn't whatever. Like my point is that uh, the addiction to negative self talk was so much harder to break the addiction to hating myself oh like that's the thing that's the addiction that props up the most frequently in my life today is when times are bad what do i reach for i reach for the bottle of self-hatred yeah you know because those chemicals haven't leached out of your system like the alcohol yeah did and that self-hatred and self you know abuse like that that is just it's poison like alcohol and drugs are poison but i will just it is right there at my fingertips. It is right there for me if I want it. And it's the hardest thing to put down. Yeah. Let me ask you this. How do you, how do you feel about, you know, we're, we're, we're in a comfortable studio right now. Mm-hmm. There's a friendly engineer on the other side of the glass. It's a sunny day. This is all going to go out into the world. Um, how are you feeling about that? Nervous. Um, I do believe that everything happens for a reason. I believe the confluence of events and conversations that brought us to this very moment didn't feel forced. Mm -hmm. Everything kind of just sort of happened to line up. Mm -hmm. And I also feel really strongly that there are people out there who may, after listening to this, call someone. Yep. And that's all it takes. I mean, I don't say that it takes because it's, it's, these are diseases that are pernicious and you you're going to need more help than a call. But a call is huge. A call is huge, and a call is the first step on a long journey. And just to tell someone, <clears throat> like, this is what I am dealing with right now, mm-hmm. it is serious, and you deserve help. Mm-hmm. It is serious. If you are thinking about hurting yourself, I again, I, I had this weird thing where I would be like, well, I don't deserve help because I'm not really serious about it or I don't deserve help because I should be able to deal with or I don't deserve help because I don't want to be a drama queen. I'm, I don't. You deserve help. 
You deserve it. Yeah. Period. You're a human being. If you are hurting, if you are in pain. There aren't circumstances in which you don't deserve it. Exactly. There are none. None. Right. No matter why it is you think, whatever it is you think that you did to deserve this pain, you don't deserve it and you can have help and it is there for you. Yeah, and there you, is help. There is help. There is it. It takes some detective work sometimes mm -hmm. and it takes a... Uh, a lot of effort, and our healthcare system has a lot of problems, um, and likely will for a while. Yeah. But there is there is help, and and you know I think if people can channel the persistence of this shit that they've been dealing with into a persistence to get better uh, and to to find that that help, I think that can go a long way. I mean, I the way I when I was. When I was saying goodbye to my brother, when my brother turned into a pile of ashes mm. um, after he died and and my sister, my older sister, was carrying the box with his ashes down to the, the boat where we we're going to go out on Puget Sound and scatter his ashes. And my mom said, is the box heavy? And my sister said, well, he ain't heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Because I believe I believe that comedy and grief can coexist. Um, but I remember thinking, well, okay, what do we have? You know, we all have to fight this with what we have. I could not go through medical school. Mm -hmm. My brain doesn't work that way. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of things I can't do. I can get to a microphone and I can write some things down. I got those skills. I got some friends who are good at talking and, you know, like – I got some costumes. We got an old barn. Let's put on a show. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's that's we're all we all just have to do what we can. And I've been, you know, I figure too. I've been carrying around this shit for so long that why not turn it against itself? Mm -hmm. You know, why not take all this experience that we've had dealing with this and channel it the other way? Um, into into trying to to help people and and maybe if someone's listening to this maybe you don't have access to a, a radio studio and and some good recording equipment but maybe you have access to a phone mm -hmm. or maybe you have access to checking in on somebody that you're worried about yeah. and and just finding out what's going on and that's that's all any of us can do the checking in part i think is key and i i want to distinguish between checking in and feeling responsible for yes yes um, you are not responsible for people's actions. Right. But it, when you're in that place of feeling undeserving and lonely and guilty, reaching out is an action that defies that. Yeah. It is the um, Petronius <laughs> to, the, to the depression. It's you, a slap in the know. face of the disease. Yeah, it is. It is. Because the disease wants you to be alone and suffer, suffer, suffer. Right. So to reach out to someone, you are actually combating the disease. Yeah. You are. To reach out to someone and to say that they're worth it. And also, I don't want to turn this turn too much into like, you know, tips, but like <laughs> to take someone out uh, for coffee or to go to visit someone who's depressed, to just to let them know like they don't have to do anything to deserve yeah. your attention and affection. Right. Like they can just, because what I would be like is I don't want to go to coffee. I don't want to see you. I don't want to do anything. And, you know, a friend that would say like, why don't we just watch Bachelor for five hours? You know? Yeah. I'll bring the ice I'll, cream. I'll bring the ice cream. <laughs> that was, that's still tempting. Yeah. <laughs> still totally into it. Yeah. Um, 
that it also helps. Like that is an action too. Like because it's the it's the care and concern. You don't have to say the right thing. In fact, talking sometimes. I'm not gonna say it makes it worse, but like it's not the point. Right. Um, the, the you're point, not going to get to the bottom of you're it. You're not going to help. You're not going to solve it, you know. Yeah. Um, but to just be there to show with an action that you care about someone and that they deserve help mm-hmm. is is that's the healing. That's that's the help that you can really give someone. Um, I also actually, now that I think about it, I'm going to cry again. Like I had a friend um, who would just call me and just get on the phone with me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, we didn't, it sounds really strange, but we would watch TV and like not talk. Uh, you'd watch the same show. Yeah. 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 And just to feel like someone's presence. Yeah. Reaching out to me. Again, you are you are slapping the disease in the face. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a, a human connection if you can make one. Yeah. You know, and, and that's and you're not going to find it on your couch. You yeah. know, you've got to you've got to get out of the house sometimes and. And try to do it, but uh, however you, this, you, however you heal, you're not going to do it by yourself. That's the yeah, un, that's the nasty truth. Because your disease would like you to think that you're going to have to do everything by yourself. Yeah, we've been talking on on. I've been interviewing some of our listeners about the weirdest thing that they've done that actually helps oh, cool. to, to address their depression. One one person plays a ukulele and other listens to Disney podcasts. Do you have anything like that that mm. is an unexpected aid? Well, I think that tasks that can be absorbing are mm. – are weirdly useful. Yes. Um, they're kind of like a meditation and along those lines. I've become hooked on crossword puzzles. I love crossword puzzles. Those are great. I also knit and crochet. But yep. the weirdest thing, but those are fairly common, but I would say like to volunteer the weirdest part of those habits that I enjoy that help is undoing knots. Really? <laughs> I've discovered this is actually a little bit of a thing. There's a community, I bet. I, I bet there is. I actually haven't discovered the community, but I've found <laughs> other people that, that share this. Like, so, you know, when you have a lot of yarn and string and mm-hmm. whatever, like, it will get knotted if, unless you're totally, like, completely organized about it, and I'm not, you yeah. know. And, and so, but there's a part of me that when I see a really nasty knot, like, oh, my yarn's got a confused, little excited. I get a little, I'm like, oh, that's going to be, <laughs> that's going to be a tough one. Like, that's going to be a tough one to undo. Woohoo! I actually read. I think the way that I know now, I'm remembering why I know this isn't that weird. Or it may be weird, but it's not completely unique to me. Is there's a Joe Hill novel mm-hmm. where the um, protagonist, who is also an addict, likes to undo knots. Wow! So I don't remember how she gets the knots. Like that is that's the thing that is like I would be if there's like a you know Reddit slash. Yeah, you've got to find a friend who loves tying complicated I know. knots. <laughs> There must be where I wonder people who are really into this like fetish. I wonder like where they get where do you? There's somebody that sells knots for like really oh, really the best knots. Somebody, like someone in Japan. Somebody listening to this is emailing us right now. <laughs> they just hit send. Where you get your knots? <laughs> Knots.com. Right. I yeah. There's probably I just monetize anything. I guess so. knots query farm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's a bonus of doing bonus of being into yarn knots. Knots. Yeah. All right. Do we well, have anything we want to talk about before we sign off? We probably 
we've, we've created a lot of content. We, we have made content. We've made highly clickable content. The only thing that I want to do that I want to make sure we get to is uh, in the spirit of, of talking about um, getting help, and I'm vamping a little bit here, Good. is um, that one of my favorite things that, uh, that Google does is if you type in the word suicide, the first thing you get, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. It's confidential. It's free in the United States. Uh, also, there is the crisis text um, line, which now I'm going to have to do my Google. Okay. Because I know that it exists. Um, you know, we didn't get to talk about um, the politics of some of the stuff. I, we might have to do that on another show. Yeah. Uh, because as we're doing this, um, I'm reminded that if we lose um, the ban on discriminating against pre-existing conditions, doing things like talking about your mental illness could be used as evidence of having a pre-existing condition. Mm-hmm. So You're on the record and an insurance company would be able to point to that? Yep. So let's just not do that. Yeah. So call. I will go ahead and say, if you have an interest in this, you might call your representative. Uh, Insurance companies, please plug your ears. Yes. Uh, Crisis text hotline, how it works. They're on Twitter, crisis text line. Great. Um, And that's a whole, again, a whole other show. There's been all these improvements in how people uh, reach out to those who are struggling online. There's a lot of people who are thinking about how to do that. But if you're out there and you're struggling, you can also be the one to reach out yourself. It's yeah. an amazing thing to do. And even though you are alone, you're not alone. You're in. I mean this in the least creepy way You're not as weird as you think you are. This, I don't mean this in the creepy way, but you're not alone. <laughs> like Help is coming from inside the house. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, help is coming from inside the house. That's help right. is in the back seat of the car with a hook. <laughs> Well, Anna Marie Cox. John Moe. Thank you. Thank you. Do we? Do you have any credits you need to say? Um, I will probably be taping credits separately from this. All right. But Sounds I good. really loved being here. Yeah. And uh, we'll do this again sometime. Fight the power. Hey, we kind of fumbled some of those helplines. If you need immediate help and you're in the U.S., the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is free and confidential. 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. And it turns out the 8255 spells talk, which I didn't know until today. So 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line is another resource. All you do is text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. You'll get a text back from a trained crisis counselor who can help you. And remember, it is not a failure to get help. It is a triumph to get help. 
My thanks to Anna Marie Cox and the folks at Crooked Media. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by and at American Public Media. Our recording engineer for this episode was Johnny Vince Evans, technical director Veronica Rodriguez. The executive producer of The Hilarious World of Depression is Kate Moose. Thanks also to Nate Toby. Our theme song is called Pagliacci, and it was written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller. More from Rhett is available at rhettmiller.com. I'm John Moe. Bye now. says doc that's the problem what if i was to tell you i'm paiachi this great big smile is just for show what if i was to tell you this is just grease paint would you say i'm a hopeless case say it ain't so I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know